we Presbyterians need a few minutes to catch our breath. And while you're doing that, I'd like to read to you a couple of verses from Matthew 13. Jesus is speaking. He's speaking a series of parables. And he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, know that in it there are five major teaching sections, all of which, of course, contain the words of our Lord Jesus. Chapter seven through, or five through seven are commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, and they are teachings that deal basically with the requirements and the ethics of the kingdom of heaven. Chapter 10 contains Jesus' teachings about discipleship. In chapter 18, he addresses the subject of the church. In chapters 24 and 25, we find a set of Jesus' teachings commonly called the Olivet Discourse, and they deal with things that at the time, at least, were yet future. And in chapter 13, we find a number of parables, the theme of each one of which is the kingdom of heaven. We read these teachings of our Lord found in the Gospel of Matthew, and careful students of Scripture wonder about them. We don't wonder, are they true? We don't wonder, are they important? All of these things are not doubted by serious Christians. But the question that intrigues us as students of the Bible has to do with the nature of these five groupings of Jesus' teachings. And the question is basically, are we to understand that each of these is a body of Jesus' teachings delivered on one occasion to one people, or are they collections of Jesus' teachings brought together by the inspired author and put together thematically in his gospel? The question is an interesting one for students of the scriptures, but we recognize that it is of academic interest only, for in any case, this is the word of God intended to bind our mind to shape our lives, and to fill our hearts with the hope and the peace of the gospel. Regarding this question, though, there's a hint in this 13th chapter, this set of kingdom parables that might inform us regarding the understanding of all of them. Because when we look at all five of them, the narrative of the other four is all unbroken. It's continuous. But when we come to chapter 13, we find the suggestion that in this chapter, Jesus moved from one place to another, and he spoke first to one group and then to another. If we scan this chapter quickly, we get the impression that all of these things were said on one occasion and to one people. For the chapter begins, on the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood along the shore, and Jesus spoke many things to them in parables. And then in verse 53, we read, And it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. If we were reading this chapter very, very quickly, noticing particularly its beginning and its end, we would assume that everything that took place between these two statements was one continuous setting and teaching. 
But in fact, in between these two descriptive passages, we find the suggestions that Jesus moved and addressed different people. For example, in verses nine or three through nine, Jesus delivers the first of these parables, and obviously to the crowd on the shore from the seat of a boat floating in the sea, not far offshore. But verses 3 through 9 are followed immediately by verses 10 through 23, in which Jesus is obviously in a different setting. He's alone with his disciples, out of the hearing of the crowd. For in that setting, Jesus answered his disciples' question about his use of the parables, and then explains this first parable only to them. We read on from verses 24 to 30. And here we find the second of these kingdom parables, the parable of the wheat and the tares. But it's obvious that this was delivered to the crowd because later in this chapter, again, we find Jesus alone with his disciples and explaining its meaning only to them. Following this are the last of the parables in verses 44 through 50, apparently given only to the disciples. And then in verse 53, we read, and it came to pass that when Jesus had finished his teaching, he moved on from there. In this chapter of Matthew, we find, Matthew, we find Jesus apparently speaking to a large crowd from the water's edge and then privately to his disciples in the house and then back out to the crowd and then back to his disciples, giving us the impression that what Matthew 13 consists of are parables that Matthew heard Jesus use in different settings to different people and grouped together because of their common theme, the kingdom of heaven. And all of this was done, of course, under the flawless direction of the Holy Spirit. If you have been a student of the Bible for very long, you know that it is often true that our understanding of one part of the Bible informs our understanding of other parts of the Bible. And that could very well be the case here, for if this one body of teaching in Matthew is almost certainly a collection of disparate teachings brought together by the inspired editor, then that is quite likely true of the others as well. But as I said, this is a matter of academic interest only. Whenever and to whoever these words were spoken, they are the words of our Savior Jesus Christ, and they are intended to be a part of the foundation of our, of our faith and our hope. In chapter 13, we find seven of these kingdom parables. The first of that is the sower, and this is followed by the parable of the wheat and the tares. The third of them is the popular story of the mustard seed, which is followed by the parable of leaven. The fifth and sixth of the parables are obviously related. They are the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. And the last and seventh in the series is that of the dragnet, a story about fishermen sitting down at the end of their shift or their day and sorting their catch, keeping the good fish for their own use and throwing the bad fish away. We notice a flow of thought that runs through these seven parables. These inspired words begin by the sowing of the seed of the gospel and they end with a reference to the final judgment. In between that we're reminded that we in whose minds and hearts the seed of the gospel has taken root, live in an alien and hostile environment. 
We learn that from small and almost insignificant beginnings, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives grows and grows until his work becomes great and obvious both to ourselves and to others. And finally, that the relationship we enjoy with God as his redeemed children ought to be the most precious thing in our lives. There is in this chapter a dialogue between Christ and his disciples that ought to be instructive to us, particularly in the time in which we live. We live in a time in which much of the evangelical church almost swoons over the desperate condition of the lost. They think of the unsaved not only as living in a great darkness, but knowing that they live in a great darkness, grieving their lost condition and yearning for someone to come to them with light in his hand and show them the way that they might find their way home. We're told that we must pray for the salvation of the lost, that every one of us is called by God to be engaged in an aggressive verbal ministry of evangelism. These pleas have become all the more impassioned as churches continue to diminish in our country and as the influence of Christianity in the Western world wanes. In their desire to reach the lost, and assuming that unbelievers are turned off by the accoutrements of traditional Christianity, the ardent advocates of evangelism have radically altered the worship of the church. They've watered down either the theology of the church or its public expressions and have made the increase of numbers the key measurement of the health of ministries and churches. In their view, there is a desperate need for the light to penetrate the darkness. And to that end, as individuals and churches, we are required to focus that light, to filter that light, and to remove anything that refracts or blurs that light. In his first parable recorded in this chapter, Jesus is speaking to a large crowd made up primarily of unbelievers. Please be sure to notice that. Men, women, young people, and children living in the great blackness of sin, some of whom probably would die before Jesus had an opportunity to speak to them again. Did Jesus assume that they lived in darkness only because no one had yet made the light plain to them? Did the Lord believe that they knew that they lived in darkness, regretted that fact, and desperately longed for someone to come to them with the light that they might be set free? In verse 10, the disciples asked Jesus a question. They asked him, why do you speak to them in parables? The context requires that we understand that this question was much more than a matter of mere idle curiosity on their part, that there was puzzlement in their, or in their voices when they asked it. In effect, they're asking the Lord, why do you hide the beauty of the truth of God in these simple stories? Why don't you speak to them plainly, is the question that they were asking. On this Communion Sunday, we don't have time to be distracted too much by this line of thought. But I urge you who want to know what the mission of the church is, 
Those of you who want to know what the purpose of your individual Christian life is to consider very carefully how the Lord responded to his disciples' question. He said, because it has been given to you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. These are not the words of a hyper-Calvinist theologian. They are the words of our Lord Jesus himself. The primary mission of the Church of Jesus Christ is to know and to worship God in the beauty of his truth. The primary purpose of the individual Christian life is to energetically and enthusiastically pursue that holiness and that righteousness to which he calls us. And of course, along the way, we should always be ready to give an explanation, an answer to anyone who requires of us knowledge of what it is that makes us different, what makes us what we are in Jesus Christ. But for anyone to tell us that this sharing is the principal purpose either of the church or individual Christian lives is to distort and misrepresent the scriptures and to place a burden on shoulders not designed by God to bear it. I'd like to talk with you about the parable of the pearl of great price. In this simple allegory, you've already noticed there is just one character, and that is the jeweler, the pearl merchant, the man who is looking for precious stones. And we have to ask, as we try to understand this parable, just whom does he represent? Our first and most natural thought is that he represents us, that he represents the Christian believer the one who has found life and mercy in Jesus Christ. Many of us in this room can remember a time in life when without apparent reason, we became intensely interested in the things of God. Whatever we had thought about God, whatever we had believed about God before that time, this interest was new and it was undeniable. Our theology informs us that this interest was the result of the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote to Christians living in Ephesus, and he said, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. This work of the Holy Spirit is the new birth. Without it, we would have no desire to know God. Apart from the new birth, our only interest in the will of God would be to oppose it or subvert it or ignore it. But as a direct result of having been made alive by the Spirit of God, we felt a new and deep interest in the things of God, and consciously or subconsciously, we began a search for the knowledge of God. And in the providence of God, that search resulted in joyous discovery. Perhaps an individual responded to you when you asked him, what is it that makes you different? Maybe we found our way into a church where the sweet things of the gospel are believed and taught. It might have been a radio or TV ministry, a book or a tract, but God placed something in our way that began to answer our questions and fulfill our search. Like the man in Jesus' story looking for something of great value, we found it. Didn't Jesus say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Didn't he promise, ask and it will be given to you? Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Isn't this parable about us and all who have been and will be led to embrace Christ and his cross? But if this is the case, if this parable is really about you and about me as Christians and our search for truth and righteousness, we need to consider the cost involved at the end of that search. Jesus said that when the pearl merchant found this one pearl of incredible value, he rushed home and sold all that he possessed in order that he might obtain it. It was Moses who first asked the question. It finds an echo in the writings of Micah. What does the Lord your God require of you? The benefits of the grace of God, mercy, and eternal salvation and life are absolutely free. No money can buy them. No good work can merit them. But then God expects much of those who receive his free gifts. And we need to consider the cost of discipleship. Some of those costs are easy and natural because the exchange that we have to make is one in which the benefits far outweigh the cost. For example, before he became a Christian, a man used vulgar language regularly. But in Christ, his conscience came alive and his vocabulary changed. Before she accepted the Lord, a woman was addicted to tobacco but not convinced that her habit was one that honored the God who had saved her, she prayed, and she found the wisdom and the strength of character to abandon that habit. People have come to Christ with problems related to pornography and alcohol in their lives, but the Lord gave them great victories. Before conversion, many used the Lord's Day as their own day. They caught up on work around the house, they went shopping, they slept in, they had brunch with their families, they went golfing or hunting or fishing. But after Christ became real to them, the Holy Spirit gradually adjusted their values and jogged their calendars one day forward. In our first church, there was a couple who spent every Saturday night at one of the bars the town was famous for. And one Sunday, for no reason that anybody could pinpoint, they happened to show up in church. And then the next Saturday, they went to the bar, and the next, and the next, and the next. And then a few weeks later, they came back to church. And then they were gone back to the bar for a shorter time, and they came to church. And before long, they were in church every Sunday morning. And one of them told me that they had been saved, that they had placed their faith in Christ. And for them who, for whom the highlight of the week used to be Saturday night at the bar with their bar friends... The highlight of the week was now Sunday morning and their Christian friends. And they didn't mind paying the price. It was natural to them as the Holy Spirit created these desires within them. But some of the sacrifices that God requires of us as Christians are not so easy or so natural. Jesus called a number of men to leave their hometowns, their homes, their families, their jobs, to venture out into a hostile world to preach the gospel to largely disinterested crowds. All but one of them would give his life as a martyr for Christ. All of them went 
And some of the sacrifices God calls Christians to make have literal price tags attached to them. Jesus required one young man, whom I am convinced was saved, as a condition of his discipleship to go home and to sell everything that he possessed and then come back, his pockets empty, to follow the Lord. And in this parable, the pearl merchant sold everything that he owned in order to have this one extremely valuable pearl. Whether or not this parable is directly about us, it would be good for us as we gather around the Lord's table and as we leave this place over the next several days to be thinking as seriously as we are able about the question, what does the Lord your God require of you? While it's natural for us to assume that the pearl merchant in this parable is us, I think a good case can be made for the idea that the pearl merchant is actually God, that he was the one who was doing the seeking, he was the one who did the finding, he was the one who paid the price. In the first of these seven parables, the sower, the one who scatters the seed into the world, is God himself. In the second of these parables, the farmer, the man who owns the fields in which wheat and tares are growing up side by side, is God. In the seventh and last of these parables, it is God who sends the angels out to sift the souls of men. In Jesus' parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, the one who has lost something of great value, and the one who rejoices at its recovery is God. Jesus is quoted in 1910 as having said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In Mark 10.45, Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in Hebrews 12, we read this reference to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, we see an energized Jesus fully recovered from his temptation, embracing Andrew, embracing John, shaking the hand of Peter as he hurries through the door and rushes off to Galilee where he deliberately finds Philip and then Philip's to find Nathaniel with joy and enthusiasm searching for the real citizens and the real servants of the kingdom of heaven. And these are people we notice of little or no value to the world, but of great value to our God. If the pearl merchant in the parable is God, then this parable is about grace. What determines the value of a pearl? It's a question we could ask about many things in life, but intrinsically, that is in itself, I think that you would agree that a pearl has no more value than a rock of some kind. It's not what pearls are worth in and by themselves, but rather it's the value that we assign to them that cause them to be in demand and therefore costly. We admire their beauty, 
their durability. We want to be seen wearing them or remembered for having given them. And it's this kind of assigned worth that drives up the price of pearls and causes people to desire them. The intrinsic worth of a pearl is zero. The extrinsic worth of a pearl is great. Grace is an attribute of God that causes him to assign value to people who, apart from that grace, have no value whatsoever. God loves us, not because he finds us lovable, but simply because he chooses to love us. God has saved us, not because he finds us worthy, but simply because he chooses to save us. The hungering and thirsting after righteousness that Jesus promises will be satisfied is not our doing, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And the faith that triggers his acceptance of us is not the results of decisions that we make, but as Paul said, it is the gift of God. The pearl merchant in Jesus' story went off in search of something that had nothing but an arbitrary assigned value. But when he found it, he made a great sacrifice in order that that which he had found might become his. And isn't this the heart of the gospel? Isn't this central to our celebration of the Lord's Supper? Peter said of Jesus that he bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. Paul wrote to Christians living in Corinth, Do you not know that you are not your own? You were bought at a price. In the words of Christ spoken at the Last Supper and recorded by Luke, we see simultaneously the joy of the Lord in his search for those chosen by God and the horrors of the cost of their redemption. Because in that upper room, he said, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. And then he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The pearl of great price in the Lord's parable is the church that bears his name in each one of its elect redeemed people the sacrifice he made in order to make it his own was his own life. In just a few moments, you and I are going to stand and sing the words of a hymn that is familiar to us. May there be awe and amazement in our hearts and minds as we sing, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die, would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I. Let us pray. Our Father, often on the pages of your word, we are reminded that we found you because you first found us, that we seek you because you first sought us. It's an amazing thing to us, our God, that you should choose to assign value to us, that you should desire us, that you should send your son Jesus to pay a horrible price for our redemption in order that you might call us your children and that we might know you as our Father. We believe these things to be true, not because they make sense to us, but because you reveal them to us on the pages of your word, always. But particularly on occasions like this, we rejoice in them. 
We thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen.